0: Hello, and welcome to season two of the Kraken Busters, where we explore the great sea monster crisis of 1987. This is episode 204 Decisions. I'm Keith Pilly. Before we get rolling, though, I'd like to respond to some listener mail. Bob from Santa Fe asks, Given all the time and thought you've put into the Sea Monsters War of the 40s and 50s, I wonder what you think of the Truman Memorial in Oakland. And, well, Bob, thank you so much for asking. I I can't even be objective about the Truman Memorial. Architecturally, I guess it's not much. It's just another obelisk. We've seen them. Uh, But what it represents, that, that really gets to me. If you will indulge me, I'll quote a little bit. From the uh, manuscript of my book about the 40s and 50s crisis that turned into season one of this show, I say, quote, By the time we got to Remembrance Park, the kids were squirrely from the long drive, so my wife and I played with them for a while in an open field. But the whole time I was conscious of the needle of the Truman Memorial poking up into my peripheral vision in the distance. After the kids had burned off some energy, I excused myself and made my way over. There are places in the world where you can feel the weight of history so palpably that you feel like you've slipped out of the stream of regular time. Berlin is one of those places, with its memorial cobbles, noting the residences of Holocaust victims and its buildings still in 2020 bearing unrepaired war damage, and from its physical legacy of six years of political separation. The southern tip of Manhattan has the same kind of energy. New Orleans does, if you hit it in the right mood. But my God, none of those places hold a candle to the Truman Memorial in Remembrance Park in Oakland. Even the most casual student of history knows that to be there means to stand at ground zero for the third atomic bomb used in anger. Standing there, feeling separated from the time stream, I marveled at the amazing American generosity of spirit it took for the city of Oakland to erect a memorial to Harry Truman, our most tragic president right there. Or maybe it was just perversity, which could also be an American virtue. Or at least an American trait. Okay, I, I, I go on a bit more in the manuscript, but you get the idea. I just I think it's an astonishing place. And if you haven't been there, you should absolutely go and check it out. Uh, thanks again for asking, Bob. And if anyone else has a question or a comment, I would as always love to hear them. So Last week, we stuck close with Javier Delgado and the rest of his team from Detachment 69, who were sent by President Kennedy to conduct some reconnaissance in the seas off Iceland to see, one, if there actually were sea monsters there, and two, assuming there weren't sea monsters there, what the Icelandic government was actually up to. And as it turned out, they never got to two, because there very much were sea monsters there, including a huge jellyfish that killed and ate the crew of a crashed helicopter. The fearless freak's support ship was swamped by lesser creatures, but Delgado and some other freaks were able to essentially cut the ship out with a heavily armed assault hovercraft. This week, Delgado reports back to Washington that the crisis is real, and Robert Kennedy has some choices to make. Also, we're going to walk through a short history of the Atlantic Defense Pact and the Cold War. Since Detachment 69 was very frequently used for exactly the kind of covert reconnaissance of sensitive situations that this Iceland mission was, there was already a protocol in place for getting detailed reports back as quickly as possible. The Flag Island, like other military assets that were frequently seconded over to the Freaks, had been outfitted with a special high-encryption video conference system that let Delgado and the other freaks on the mission report back in great detail directly to General Abernathy, who could then brief whatever important Washington entity, in this case the President, had asked for the information. This whole system was set up this way, partly for quickness and partly because Even if most of the rest of Detachment 69 wasn't quite as dissolute as Javier Delgado, there weren't too many people on the team who you could count on not to commit some kind of protocol atrocity when they were talking to someone outside of the Freaks family. And ten times that if we are talking about the president here. So late in the evening of May 6th, General Abernathy went to the White House and briefed Kennedy and the national security team on what had just happened. The jellyfish, and Abernathy was now following Delgado's habit of referring to the thing as Prince Jellyfish after the psychedelic bestseller, and the swamping of the flag island by lesser creatures, and the loss of the helicopter crew, and, you know, all of that. Um, Kennedy and the advisors, needless to say, were alarmed by this. The discussion at the White House was fast and furious. The team included Kennedy's usual National Security Brain Trust, National Security Advisor Burke, Secretary of Defense Inouye, Secretary of State Biden, the President's brothers, former Senator John Kennedy and sitting Senator Edward Kennedy, and Director of Central Intelligence Ron Hughes. Predictably, Inouye argued for an immediate muscular response. The United States had naval assets scattered throughout the North Atlantic, just have them rally somewhere and then move into the infected zone and in a great show of force start eradicating the creature menace. This wasn't 1947. The Navy knew how to fight sea monsters and had much more appropriate weapons aboard every ship just in case of this eventuality. Even the Flag Island had been able to cut its way out and it had gone in more or less unprepared. This was a chance to deal with the problem head-on and look strong and decisive in the process. But the President's brothers argued strongly in the other direction. It would risk political suicide, they said, to make a big public stand against the creatures. Because what if the Navy didn't pull it off? Why risk a public panic over creature resurgence when it wasn't clear if the Navy could handle it? It was one thing to sit in an office and say, Well, this isn't 1947 anymore. It's another to actually be in combat, trying out doctrines that haven't been used in 35 years. Rich Trumbull and Kay Hendry had worked with the Navy to run a bunch of war games in the 60s to try to work out what could happen in potential new sea creature outbreaks. The outcomes were always disastrous. And anyway, Edward Kennedy argued, what had really licked the Pacific creatures in 1950 had been the Project Mousetrap Explosive Barge Programme. Current Navy ships might all carry some pro forma anti-sea creature munitions, but none of them were towing barges full of explosives and creature lures, and they didn't have months to whittle the population down. The risks of a direct confrontation were just too high. As a practical matter, then, Biden argued that the State Department thought there was a risk, too, in keeping the resurgence and the Flag Island incident under wraps for the time being. We never knew what the Soviets knew about it, for instance, and if they were aware, the Soviets could blow the whistle on the whole thing. and cause a lot of trouble. John Kennedy and Director of Central Intelligence Hughes poo-pooed this idea, though, on the grounds that the Soviets also relied quite a bit on shipping through the North Atlantic, and that a panicked disruption to Atlantic shipping would hurt them quite a bit, too. They'd probably keep it under wraps, the President's brother argued. As he usually did, Robert Kennedy followed his older brother's advice and agreed to keep things quiet for the time being. Although a final complication was thrown into the mix when Hughes pointed out that the Soviets might have their own opportunity here to make a strong international statement if they were the ones to move a powerful naval presence to Iceland and eradicate the nascent creature menace. National Security Advisor Juliana Burke had this to say about this meeting. Quote, as a president, Robert Kennedy could be so indecisive that he'd drive you crazy. But he had his moments where he cut against this grain and rattled off consequential decisions at lightning speed. And this was one of those moments, after sitting there and listening to his brothers and the rest of us pepper him with opinions. He just rattled it off. End quote. For the immediate term, he ordered everyone in the room and everyone associated with both Detachment 69 and the USS Flag Island to stay absolutely quiet about what they'd seen. He also ordered the Flag Island to hold station at her current location, approximately 300 miles east of the southern tip of Greenland. He wanted her to wait for other Atlantic fleet elements from the regular Navy to join her in case a decision was made to apply naval force, especially if it looked like the Soviets were about to make some big grandstand play at killing sea monsters. He ordered Inouye to get the Navy working on assembling that task force. He ordered Biden to set up calls with the leaders of the UK, Ireland, Belgium, Spain, and other Atlantic Defense Pact nations to discuss the situation and coordinate their response. He ordered Hughes to step up CIA efforts to find out what the Soviets knew about all this and what they were up to both in Europe and within Iceland. He asked his chief of staff to track down Rich Trumbull and Kay Hendry, the architects of the victory over the sea monsters in the 40s, and bring them in for an executive briefing as soon as possible. He ordered everybody to scour their local contacts and find someone in D.C. academia who was the best local expert in xenomarine biology, preferably someone who also knew a thing or two about the conflict in the 40s and 50s. And then he ordered everyone but his brothers out because the popular singer Madonna Saccone was scheduled to stop by the White House for a drink in 20 minutes. The first lady was out of town and he needed a little time to get ready. With Kennedy's request to talk to leaders of other ADP nations, it occurs to me that maybe it'd be a good idea here to spend a few minutes talking about what the ADP was and is, I guess, and how it fit into the bigger picture of the Cold War. As usual, I'm gonna to have to ask your forgiveness if this is stuff you already know, as I'm sure it is for a lot of you, but it's important to me that everybody's all the way on board here. And as far as that goes, I do think it's a pretty interesting story. So okay. If you remember, at the end of World War II in Europe, the Western Allies had met the Soviet army basically in the middle of Germany, roughly at the Elbe River. Post war negotiations between Harry Truman, Joseph Stalin, and And the other Allied leaders had divided Germany into two occupation zones, more or less. One in the east, administered by the Soviets, and the other to the west, by the Western Allies, specifically the US, UK, and France. And okay, technically it was four occupation zones, but the three Western ones were all kind of lumped together, and the east-west difference is the only one that really mattered. The uh, same arrangement was repeated in Berlin, despite the fact that the city physically lay entirely within the Soviet occupation zone. There was some tension around this whole setup, but it seemed like a workable temporary status quo in the immediate aftermath of the war. Stalin had been happy to get help from the West when there were massive German armies occupying most of European Russia, but he'd never really trusted his allies, and he'd frankly just never really stopped being Joseph Stalin, which meant that paranoia and distrust defined his relationship with the West, even during a period of military alliance. Now that the need for that alliance was over, a new set of incentives drove Stalin, and since he had structured the Soviet government in such a way as to concentrate essentially all power into himself, this meant that a new set of incentives drove all Soviet policy. And these incentives all pushed towards expansion, both of formally controlled territory and of influence. The most generous way to look at this is to acknowledge that Russian history, going back for hundreds of years and within very recent memory if you're a Russian in the late 40s, was dominated by massive, ruinous invasions from the West. So Stalin's desire to absorb and dominate as much of Europe as possible in this light could be interpreted as an attempt to forestall future such invasions. Alternately, there's the ideological lens. The Soviet Communist Party was fundamentally built around the idea of worldwide communist revolution, so you could argue that it was wired into the Soviet state at the most basic levels to try to dominate as many neighboring governments as possible to spread the revolution. Finally, there's the human nature lens. For whatever reason, humans in leadership positions just often seem to have an innate urge to try to control more territory, regardless of their political system, but especially in strongman systems and Stalin was pretty close to the archetypal example of the 20th century strongman. Anyway, you can choose which of these lenses is the most appropriate, and for what it's worth, I think they're all valid at the same time. The important thing is that the war in Europe hadn't been over for very long before Stalin started getting actively expansionist in Europe. This started out with the installation of puppet governments throughout Eastern Europe, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the eastern part of Germany that was then under Soviet control. And then, in 1949, Stalin and the rest of the Soviet government became aware that the United States was busy dealing with the sea creature crisis in the Pacific and probably wouldn't have the bandwidth to do much in Europe. We talked about this just a bit back in Season 1. So they more or less openly seized the West portion of Berlin and then had their puppets in East Germany get to work agitating in the West for German unification under the Berlin government. This came to pass in 1953. A few more dominoes tumbled throughout the early 50s, with Finland, Sweden, and Greece all falling under Soviet-dominated puppet governments, and Italy turned into a hotbed of intense political and occasionally physical struggle between Soviet-backed and Western-oriented forces. Now, if you remember from Season 1, at the time of the Berlin accession, President Dewey was unable to do anything about it, and he wasn't very happy about that. I dropped the thread of that story there because we were focused on the Pacific, but Dewey didn't just sit idly by as more and more of Europe fell under Soviet domination. Working in the background with his Secretary of State John Marshall Butler, Dewey managed to negotiate a defensive alliance among some of the former allies from the war. It was called the Atlantic Defense Pact, and it was explicitly designed to counter further Soviet expansion into Western Europe. The charter members of the ADP were the United States, the United Kingdom, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Ireland. Iceland and Denmark joined later in the 50s. Spain joined in the mid-60s after General Francisco Franco had been overthrown and executed. Dewey, like all of his successors, was immensely frustrated by France's refusal to join the alliance. Publicly, Charles de Gaulle claimed that France needed to find its own way and avoid becoming a puppet of either superpower. Privately, de Gaulle saw that there was always a continuous chance to get concessions from both sides by playing them off of each other. At any rate, France's non-aligned nature was to remain one of the major throbbing points of American foreign policy headaches for the next several decades. We already talked about how RFK had done kind of a pratfall on this front early in his term, giving fuel to his rep as a hapless loser on foreign policy. Now, I, I don't want to walk us through a detailed history of the Cold War here, even though it's just it's endlessly fascinating. I, I just want to hit some important points that will color the rest of our story here. After the formation of the ADP, the Soviets responded with their own defensive alliance built of their satellite states. This was called the Berlin Pact because it was ratified in, well, Berlin. The ADP and Berlin Pact existed in a state of constant low-intensity standoff, and remember, both are trying constantly to woo the French into their camp. With the stakes constantly being slowly raised as technological improvements and arsenal expansions made the delivery of more and more nuclear weapons of higher and higher yield easier and easier. By the early 60s, this meant that the two sides had literally thousands of nuclear-tipped missiles pointed at each other. And on one hand, this status quo kept a lid on out-and-out military confrontations between the two camps. Neither side wanted to risk the nuclear escalation that was seen as nearly inevitable. But on the other hand, this meant that the ADP and Berlin Pact were constantly fucking with each other around the margins, through both their intelligence services and -and out-and-out proxy wars between client states. And in both of these cases, Detachment 69 and their Soviet counterparts tended to get involved a lot. And these actions always had the potential to escalate to nuclear crises. In Europe, this included things like the Spanish crisis that overthrew Franco and the Soviet invasion and occupation of Athens. The Honduran embassy incident in Latin America and its subsequent crisis was widely agreed to have been partly the work of the KGB, the Soviet intelligence agency. And of course, you've got the banner headline event of the Cold War, the one we all remember, the one that scared everyone who lived through it absolutely shitless. Uh, And this was in the Pacific, not Europe. The Japanese Civil War of 1959, very largely a proxy battle between the CIA and KGB, and it brought the world to the absolute brink of nuclear war. By the 80s then, this framework had been in place for decades. Two opposing alliances, both armed with enough nuclear weapons to ensure their ability to utterly destroy each other, with the resulting deterrent equilibrium referred to by the acronym M.A.D. or M.A.D. for Mutually Assured Destruction. Neither side trusted each other. Neither side wanted to be the one that tipped the whole apple cart over. But also, neither wanted to let the other side get away with something that would give them an advantage. The two superpowers relied heavily on their lesser partners, both for air and missile bases, and for conventional force support for the general European land war that everyone still sort of expected to happen at some point and end civilization. So this is all why RFK asked to consult with the leaders of the UK, Ireland, Belgium, Spain, and other Atlantic Defense Pact nations. Since this was a defense crisis, and since it would inevitably involve the Soviets, he didn't have much choice but to coordinate with them. And that is about enough for this week. Next week, RFK coordinates with them. Uh, one quick thing, if you are digging the show and have any inclination to help spread the word about it, I would really appreciate it. Uh, you know, listenership is great, but i I got to get the truth out there to more people, you know? It's a, it's a crusade. It's a quest. Join my quest. Uh, thanks very much, and uh, be well. Oh,